This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. My guest today is the legendary Abby Rubenfeld. If you've been practicing law in Middle Tennessee any time since about 1980, you will be familiar with Abby. You may not know some of the things that she's done, however. Abby was instrumental in bringing the case that uh, came out of the United States Supreme Court about five years ago called Obergefell. This is the opinion that uh, essentially made uh, same-sex marriage the law of the land across the country. Not one to rest on her laurels, Abby is still at it, still fighting for equal rights for people. And uh, as she explains today, she's got an interesting case going on now that affects not just same-sex couples, but really all women in Tennessee. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Abby Rubenfeld. Okay, we are recording. My guest today is Abby Rubenfeld. Thank you for doing this, Abby. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, some stuff that sure, you've thanks. done, in, <laughs> some stuff that you've done in the past that I think is super cool, and some things that are going on now that I think are really important and also cool. Um, Abby, how how long have you been practicing law? Um, Forty-one years. And at, was there was it something that you always wanted to do, or did you come to it uh, by accident, or did did you set out you know young wanting to be a lawyer? How did all that happen? I always wanted to be a lawyer. I always had a inflated sense of justice. <laughs> no, okay. all right. Sense of justice, so. All right. So, um, where did you go to law school? I went to Boston University. All right. And how did you wind up in uh, practicing law in, in Tennessee? Um, I grew up in Florida, and I wanted to come back south. I went to college and law school in the Northeast, and I wanted to come back south but I didn't want to go to Florida and have my parents set me up. So I had some connections here and I liked it here. And I had a summer job here the summer of 1978 with legal services back in the heyday in the Carter years. And there were like, I think six or seven clerks that summer. And I did a project on domestic violence with Mary Walker. It's the first thing in domestic violence in this County. We did a little pamphlet and I met, a lot of lawyers who were very progressive, who became judges, you know, Walter Kurtz, Marietta Shipley, like a bunch of them. And, <clears throat> and the gay community was also having, it was really cyclical in those days. It was having an upswing. And so I really liked Nashville and I came back here. Okay. So, uh, I mean, guess no secret, you are, you are gay. I am. Okay. Nobody, no, this comes as no surprise to, I guess, most people. No. Uh, when no. I, I was in the National Enquirer, not the National Enquirer, one of those, the Globe or the Sun or one of those magazines when my brother was arrested um, and they made it sound like I was closeted and they were exposing me as being gay. And I wanted to sue them for defamation because, to you know, I think it hurts my reputation for people to think I was closeted. But my family had enough publicity right then, so I didn't do it. I think I would have won. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you come to Nashville and you start uh, what kind of practice? Well, I found a job with Rose Palermo and Denny Cheatham. It was good timing. It was when Rose was pregnant with her second kid and they needed help. And Denny liked me. She wanted somebody to work with Denny. And so I worked with them and that's actually how I ended up doing family. Well, I never thought I would, but Rose's practice back then was kind of like mine now. It was family law and employment discrimination. And I quickly, I mean, 
one of the reasons I worked for Rose is people had all told me that she represented all the people in the gay community, most of them. You know, she was a very LGBT friendly lawyer. And uh, so people knew, people in the gay community knew I worked there. And almost immediately I started getting like just tons of calls from lesbian mothers, some gay fathers, but mostly lesbian mothers. And in those days, it was the old fashioned kind of custody case, not like Pippin that we're going to talk about later. It was like a, you know, a lesbian mom and a fundamentalist Christian dad kind of thing that were fighting. And I just had tons of those. Um, and that got me, I mean, I, I never knew that so many lesbians had kids. <laughs> so so and, basically the storyline <laughs> would be they get married, then she either realizes who she is or decides to come out as who she is and is confronted with uh, hostile estranged right. and ex-husband and a system that is not friendly. Right. I can't tell you how many cases I had where I poured in hours and hours and wrote the best briefs in the history of the legal system. And the other lawyer would just stand up and say, but your honor, she's a felon or she's a criminal because of the, we had the homosexual acts. Actually, when I first started practicing, I can't remember if we had the, the old, you know, crimes against nature statue, but they would just stand up and say, she's a criminal and I, we'd lose. The person would lose custody. But, I mean, just happened all the time back in the late seventies, early eighties. And this is so. in spite of at the time, the tender years doctrine, which basically said, give mom, Absolutely. A, little, give mom a little kid uh, and tell dad he can see him every other weekend at most. Exactly. And you know, around that time was when the, um, there was a case in Florida, I can't remember the name of it, where literally they gave the child to a father who had previously been convicted of murder. Rather than, a, the, rather than a lesbian mom? Yep. Wow. Well, I haven't been practicing quite as long as you, but um, it's family law has come a long way. Um, That's for sure. From, from the days when if dad did everything right, uh, he might get every other weekend out of Nash out of a Nashville court uh, to now we have, we're not quite at the presumption of 50, 50, but at least we have a statute that says both parents shall that the court shall maximize both parents time. Um, that's just the custody issue. But um, when you started practicing what we were, what 40 years removed from uh, gay people being allowed to actually get married. Oh Yeah. No marriage, no job protections, which we still don't have. Although the Supreme Court's helped a little recently, but yeah, no parenting protections. It was like a different world. Yeah. So um, let's see. Uh, what were the, uh, along the way, and before Obergefell that we'll talk about in a minute, but um, along the way, gay people had to do like some workarounds to like, to like get themselves as close to married as they could be for like insurance or, or whatever. So what were some of the things that, that people had to do to cobble together some kind of state recognition or, or recognition of their, of their commitment to one another? Well, people would, and not all of it was legally enforceable. A lot of it relied on trust and, you know, agreement, <clears throat> but people did like, um, reciprocal wills and, and powers of attorney, lots of estate planning like that. 
um, if you owned a house together, then you could maybe get life insurance and name the other one as your beneficiary, because otherwise you might not be able to. You know, you could title houses as um, joint tenants with rights of survivorship, which would be kind of the equivalent of tenants by the entirety for married couples. But there are some things you just couldn't get around. I mean, the spousal presumption and um, I mean, the spousal privilege and domestic, I mean, in criminal cases. I mean, there are just a lot of things you could not get tax. around. And yeah, taxes. Well, taxes you could get around in a family that had a big income disparity and one partner supported the other. I mean, you can, I mean, I used to claim my ex-partner because she was a stay-at-home mom and I supported her. So it fit within the statutory, you know, okay. definitions and allowed you, but only in that situation. And, and breakups, you know, like even more, in some ways more important than same-sex marriage is same-sex divorce because w without having a divorce court, it's hard, you know, chance yeah, You have to go in and say partnership, right? Like, well, we you can't, there's, there's case law in Tennessee that you can't call it a partnership if it was for the purpose of, you know, if it was not for a business purpose and it's just hard. You can, if you own property together, you can try a partition, but the chancery courts hate that, you know, they're not supposed to be a divorce court or right. at least here in Jackson County. Right. Um, so it really helps make breakups better. It, it, it was constantly pounding a square peg into a round hole just to, exactly. just to let, just to to let really people creative. go through the things that uh, straight people go through without even thinking about it. Exactly. Like, for example, like, I couldn't even barely remember what a constructive trust was, but that was one of the theories that we developed to use in these kind of cases where, you know, like to say that the house was really owned together, even though both names weren't on it and things like that. But it, it became really expensive. I mean, divorces are expensive enough, but if you don't have that framework, it's even more right. expensive. If you can't start out with like the, the marital property, separate property, let's, let's exactly. do this. Uh, exactly. Then you got to start by convincing a judge to even entertain these legal ideas. Exactly. So, uh, so you go for um, you you go for decades fighting this uphill battle of pounding square pegs into round holes, and then one day, uh, and we can we can pause and and unpack as much of that as you want. But I know that you were involved in a in a really like landmark case. Uh, that ended at the Supreme Court five years ago. If you're ready to get to that, let's do it. Yes, but let me also say that <clears throat> it wasn't just a surprise then. I mean, we were chipping away at it. In, in 1995, when I was pregnant, I challenged the sodomy law here, successfully had that declared unconstitutional, which helped because that took away the argument that, Your Honor, she's a criminal. At least we got rid of that. Um, and then, you know, spending a lot of years, me and other people, in educating the judiciary and the bar here about these issues, and also, you know, public perceptions and media. I think stuff like Ellen, I mean, this is kind of stupid and hokey, but I think it's true that things like Ellen coming out publicly and some of the shows that were on TV that kind of made it, you know, clear that gay people aren't really any different. Um, would you, would you put Will and Grace in that category? 
Yes, absolutely. I was trying to think of other ones. I put Queer Eye, but that was way after. But yes, definitely Will and Grace. And Will went to Princeton. I like that part the best. Yeah. So, um, and he was a lawyer, right? Exactly. So, all right. So little by little. Now, I, in doing this podcast, I've, and I think I realized this before, but sometimes the Supreme Court kind of is the tip of the spear and says, all right, guys, it's always been one way, but starting tomorrow, it's different. And then sometimes the Supreme Court is like the last to know, right? Like they look around and they go, oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, okay, that's what we'll do then. Um, so at some point, uh, and I don't know how long it took to get from you meet your client to you wind up at council table in Washington, D.C. at the United States Supreme Court. But at some point, you get a client with, um, with the issue of can, can same-sex couples obtain a marriage license or not? Well, no, no, no. This case was completely created from scratch. We sought out, we developed a theory and then we sought out the plaintiffs. See, okay. like, you want me to, I'll tell you how the, our, our, the Tennessee case that went to the Supreme Court with Obergefell was called Tanko versus Haslam. And the way it came about is, um, let's see, after the United States Supreme Court ruled in uh, the Windsor case, that Edie Windsor's Canadian marriage had to be recognized um, by the federal government for tax purposes. She had inherited a, her part, her spouse died. She got married in Canada because same-sex marriage was not recognized in New York State where she lived. She got, they got married in Canada. They had a lovely life together. The partner died, I mean, the wife died and she inherited a lot of money and they wouldn't apply the you know, the tax code to them as a married couple. So it was going to cost her a few hundred thousand dollars. And so she challenged DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, the federal law, and won. And when she won, it was seemed clear to me that the next obvious step was to say that states, had, if, if the feds had to recognize marriages, they were going to say that the states had to. Even right, I think... So, so let's make this clear. Said, okay, so, sorry. I'm sorry. I just want to... Some of the listeners are not um, are not necessarily lawyers. Okay. So, so the Windsor case compels the federal government to accept for tax purposes at the federal level this same-sex marriage that was um, done in Canada. Yes, it said the okay. federal government had to recognize same valid same-sex marriages that were valid in the jurisdiction where they um, where they did the marriage. Okay, so that did not reach however, whether or not same-sex couples could get married in, say, Mississippi or, or Oregon or wherever. Right. It didn't reach that, and it didn't reach the issue of whether Mississippi or Oregon had to recognize their valid Massachusetts marriage. Like, because okay. remember, starting go, in, I can't Yeah, some states permitted same-sex marriage, so right. people would go there, get married, come home, and then have trouble getting that state where they lived. Right. I did that. Them. I did okay. that, right? I just had my twelfth um, anniversary. My spouse and I went to California in two thousand eight and got married long before Tennessee. Tennessee didn't recognize it till I went to the Supreme Court. So there, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so 
you were saying, and this this is quite often what happens in public policy, um, right? You know, where you're using courts to sort of force uh, force right. an issue. You find or cultivate the facts, right? Right. Okay. So when when the Windsor decision came out, the Tennessean called me for a comment. I don't think at the time, I guess they didn't have a lot of gay people, openly gay people they could call. But anyways, they called me. And in the course of talking about the case, the reporter asked me like, well, will there be a challenge in Tennessee? And I just instinctively said, hell yes. So then it was in the tent and I didn't have plaintiffs. I didn't have people work on me. I didn't have anything. But so that was in the Tennessee and the next day. And this woman from uh, Knoxville, Regina Lambert, she wrote me, she was a lawyer there, wrote me about it and she wanted to be involved. So I called her and was like, hey, you're co-counsel and now we got to create a case. And so we worked together to find a big firm to help us because we knew it was too much for just us. We solicited another solo attorney from Memphis. So we had the whole state covered and then we got Bill Harbison's firm to help us because his son volunteered him. We were like, ah, you can't volunteer your dad. He's like, yeah, 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 he'll do it. And called him right while we were on the phone. And Bill was like, yeah. So we recruited them. And actually before I recruited them, I called a national LGBT, LGBT group, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which I think is the best national LGBT group. And I work with them quite frequently. And I asked if they wanted to do it. And they were kind of like me. They're like, hell yes. And so we had a team and then we set about, we, we made a strategic decision. But by that time, you know, like within months of Windsor, there were tons of cases being filed all over the country to challenge state laws that prohibited marriage equality. Of course, right. And so we, we made a conscious choice to file a really narrow case in case, because you know, the United States Supreme Court frequently doesn't like to take big giant steps they only want to take teeny little baby steps so we decided to make our case a baby step for them so they'd have that option to fall back on okay. if any of the cases made it to the supremes so our case was only about same-sex couples that got married not like me who left tennessee to go get married people who lived in another jurisdiction where it was legal, got married legally, and then moved to Tennessee and Tennessee wouldn't recognize. Okay. So, so it wasn't couple, like, like, I don't want, I'm, obviously I'm not diminishing or denigrating yours, but you went to California to get married, even though you were a Tennessee resident, you came back. Right. Some people right. lived in another state where they lawfully could get married same sex and then life brought them permanently to Tennessee. So they were already married when they got here. Exactly, which and made it even more. You, that's the one that you got or found. Right. That's the okay. one that we set up, not just people saying, I want to get married. I live in Tennessee. I want to get married. The statute's unconstitutional, which it was, but that, that was already being covered by lots of other cases. So okay. we decided to do this, this baby step in case the Supremes wanted that. Unfortunately, they didn't. I mean, they took our case but they ruled on the overall issue, which was So they, much they did better. take the big step, but you had the, you, you, you had right. a, you had like a flank, a, a flank position right. where like if they want if they didn't want to reach the big issue, which they did, but if they right. didn't, they could say, but right. that one, and what was the case that you had, Tanaka or? Tank, Tanko versus Haslam. <clears throat> Tanko versus the governor. Okay. Plaintiff. 
So she had, she had been living somewhere else, married same sex in another state with a valid marriage license under that state, and then permanently moved to Tennessee because that's what life became. Well, yes, but it was all, like our plaintiffs were really great couples because she and her wife were both vets, veterinarians, <clears throat> professors, and they were offered jobs together at UT. They'd been at Cornell Veterinary mm, School. Okay. And they're both pretty sophisticated. One of them's like a, a high-level obstetrician for um, animals, like with a picture of her delivering white white tiger cubs or something and the other one is a heart specialist for animals and so and as it turned out they were pregnant when the case started and that became a huge part of our case but they were you know their marriage wasn't going to be recognized here which created lots of problems particularly for when they had the kid and another one of our couples were two guys that one worked for a law firm in California that transferred a lot of their support staff to Tennessee, probably to pay them less than they should, which is a separate issue. But so all the people like that, that they uh, transferred here who were married, like were worried about their families. Like this guy brought his husband, their kids, the, uh, you know, the mother-in-law and their marriage wasn't recognized. And the couple who was actually mentioned in the Obergefell decision were like perfect plaintiffs because one of them was a veteran of Afghanistan and he was active duty military. Before he deployed to Afghanistan, he married his partner in a valid marriage in New York. And then when he came back from Afghanistan, he was transferred to Memphis. So he didn't have any choice. The U.S. government moved they put him to Tennessee. Here. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so you, had, they you were, had all kinds of bases. They were perfect. Here. Yeah. All we right. had another couple too, but they broke up in the middle and the case wasn't about gay divorce. So we had to drop it. <laughs> okay. So now Obergefell become, is, it, uh, is a, a handful or maybe more than a handful, but a number of cases that are in the sixth circuit, Tennessee, Michigan, what? Uh, and, Ohio, Kentucky. Ohio and Kentucky. All four so, states. All right, so you had you had at least one or maybe more cases from we we had state. we had six cases we had four states six cases five national organizations and I think thirty seven lawyers. All right, and so the issue there were there were layers of issues ranging from recognition of a of a sister state in a in a state where you now live, recognition where you were forced to move there by the government or, or picked to move there by your job or so you have all these similar cases percolating through the various uh, courts. And I, are they, are they in the nature of declaratory judgment actions? Well, no, they're yes. And, and they also presented different factual scenarios because the Michigan case, they had had a whole trial and their couple they had a couple that had been foster parents and then adopted kids and then got married, but they had a whole trial on the merits. And actually one of their attorneys, Dana Nessel, is currently the uh, attorney general of Michigan. So, so to set this up, what happens is you, you, each of these cases, I assume comes up, is presented as a, at least probably some of them, and I've read Obergefell, but I didn't have the chance to read all of the underlying district court litigation. But I assume that what's happened is that in, were they all originated in federal court? Yes. Okay. And so, all of them 
we won all of you know our side won in all of them all right to, so you win at the you you win at the, the district, district court. court right you win at the you go to the district court and you basically say hey these state statutes that prohibit the recognition of same-sex marriage under all these different fact patterns are unconstitutional under the federal constitution and the district courts in four different states say you're right they get consolidated yes. procedurally because they present similar issues they get consolidated and they go to cincinnati for the sixth circuit which is between the district right. court and, and the supreme court and the sixth circuit sorry that's all the, right the sixth circuit set what set what i call gay day they set our cases together specially um <laughs> and it was really intense because they had this really intense security like dogs sniffing the courtroom and all this stuff and we had to go two hours early and they there were so many of us the, the lawyers and the plaintiffs that i think it was just all of us there couldn't even be media in the courtroom and then like you couldn't leave after a certain point even if you had to go to the bathroom you, if you left you couldn't come back in even if you're one of the lawyers it's been a so while since i've been in cincinnati but it wasn't like that for me i think it was special for this case but <laughs> I know. I don't know. It's like they thought people were going to try to kill us. Or, I can I think know, of what? twice that I've been in the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati, and neither occasion did it. Did it, no. Okay. So, so whether they did or they didn't, you end up going to the Sixth Circuit, and they rule against everyone, right? Right. And remember too that right before that, at the time we went to the Sixth Circuit, there had already been maybe sixty opinions in favor of same-sex marriage around the country. Every, in state, every, in sup state supreme courts, district courts, intermediate courts, right. all, all over the place. Right. And, and appellate, yes, intermediate appellate courts. Everyone had ruled our way. And remember, Ruth Bader Ginsburg made the statement that, well, you know, we can't take a case where there's no agreement in the lower courts. So people wanted there to be uh, a court of appeals decision against us, which kind of was cruel to us because when we lost in the Sixth Circuit, all my friends, my lawyer friends, my listeners were all like, yay, now the Supreme Court will take it. And we were like, well, could you at least be sorry we lost our case? <laughs> so, it, all right. So, 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 like strategic loss, like, I'm not going to say they did you a favor, but, but had they ruled they in your did. favor, uh, you, we, we might not have gotten where we got right. when we got there. It would have taken exactly. another whole Now, let me ask you this, just, just for, out of curiosity for myself. From the time you start with Tanko, how long is it before you wind up seating yourself at the Supreme Court, the council table in Washington, D.C.? Well, not very long. I mean, we set up the case in the fall of 2013, and we were sitting at the Supreme Court in april of 2015. now i suppose that that's probably because all of these cases except for the one you were talking about out of i think michigan none of these cases required an extensive trial they were probably all ruled on on motions yes. to dismiss yes but still when we got the sixth circuit ruling i can't remember the timing but it was kind of late in the supreme court's term and 
of course, we brought on a Supreme Court specialist because nowadays, you know, there's this whole specialized Supreme Court bar that they prefer, which that's a whole separate topic. I don't really like that idea. But anyway, right. it really ought to be anyone, anyone who's capable exactly. with a case that's appropriate, right? Exactly. But we got one of those guys who's the liberal and who it turned out had gone to college and law school with one of the guys that works at NCLR. And so he joined us and he learning the process like we counted back the Supreme Court has um, meetings I think they're on Fridays where they consider the cases that they'll take and there was only going to be a couple more or one I can't remember how many where they have before. the meeting to decide how many votes there are to take the case yes if they're going to accept a case and there was only now what is, out of nine what does it take they have to take there has to be four so at least four have to say yes let's take this right but the important thing in this case was the timing that we were late in the term. There weren't going to be that many more conferences where they would decide that and there wouldn't be time for an oral argument before this. Um, so you might have had to wait another full year. Another whole year. And we didn't want to do that. So right. let me let me interrupt you for a second and ask and okay. back up for just one second. Let's make clear. Who are you fighting against? It, 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 it's the it's the attorneys general of these various states who are there to uphold their state laws, right? Yes, although in Kentucky, the attorney general wouldn't defend it and they had outside counsel. So the, the, so the actual appointed or elected attorney general uh, said no wouldn't thanks. Okay. Yep. So in, in Tennessee, we have a little bit of a unique attorney general situation. In Tennessee, the attorney general is appointed by the Supreme Court, but in other states, the attorney general is elected, right? Yes. So, and I think the hierarchy was elected. So the and in many cases, the attorney general is an elected position, and it is the stepping stone to the governor's mansion. Now I don't know exactly. if that's true in so, I don't know if that, but so, but in any event, in most of the other states in the United States, the attorney general is a highly political elected office. Yes, but, but nonetheless, did, you had the Kentucky guys still did this. Yeah, nonetheless, I assume you had. I mean. It won't be a surprise to learn that you had either Republican appointees or elected Republicans defending their state law that said we're not recognizing same-sex marriage. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So but you had arguments. The arguments they could use were pretty limited and kind of stupid. And, and uh, even at the Sixth Circuit argument, Sissy Daughtry was on the panel and she bill harbison argued for us in the sixth circuit and she even asked him when he started like counsel could you explain to me what the state's arguing because i can't follow it. <laughs> well and and of course um judge daughtry is is let's say predisposed to be liberal exactly she's a clinton appointee right, right? <laughs> or an obama appointee yes okay so, so um so you but wind so up the thing I well, we wound up in the Supreme Court, but the thing I want to point out, because I'm really proud of this, is that, you know, you have 60 days to do a petition, a certiorari petition asking the Supreme Court to take your case. And we did ours in one week, because that's all the time we had. And the reason the case is named Obergefell and not Tanko is because they e-filed their petition maybe an hour before we filed ours. It was who right. filed first. So for the non-lawyers among us, or even for the lawyers that, that maybe don't know how this works, you have to go to the Supreme Court and explain to them 
why this case has to be taken because 90 some 90 something percent of the cases that and it's a very detailed difficult process right but like the Uh are you still there i'm not hearing you yeah i'm here okay now i am over 90 i think one time i looked it up and like over 90 percent of the cases that that are presented to the supreme court are rejected so it, it has to be an issue and there are certain criteria but you have to check off the criteria and explain to them why the supreme court needs to take this case and resolve this issue and it's it's not easy so that's before you get to argue you have to you have to first convince them to even give you an audience right and in our situation too we didn't know if they would just take one of the cases or all of the cases we did some coordinating on how we 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 tennessee our team we organized all four states like we did some moot courts um, before the Sixth Circuit argument invited the other states down here and we all worked together at the Sixth Circuit and then on the cert petitions we, we all worked together because we didn't know if it would, they would only take one um, and everybody worked together well except Michigan they didn't play so well <laughs> well one can always count on Abby to be to be plain uh, and 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 correct. So, um, so you you convince the Supreme Court that they need to take this case, which is highly unusual. Right. They then take all of them, which right, which which even more like, unusual. Well, it seems like a signal to, in retrospect, right? Yep. Okay. So you're you're kind of fast tracked from day one of filing totally. Tanko to in Nashville District Court to. Uh, to Washington, D.C. So um, you actually got to um, be at counsel table for the oral arguments. What's that? That's like, that's, if you're a trial lawyer, that's like the day, you, the day you thought in your head. It's like if you're a little boy in the backyard playing baseball, you're, you're imagining the ninth inning of the World Series game seven and you're hitting the home run. This is, it's kind of the right. same. You're, you're there at the counsel table in Washington arguing this issue that's critical to you personally uh, and professionally. Yes. And I had a lot of mixed emotions about that. On the one, For one thing, um, I was kind of the only one of the 37 lawyers who had been a gay rights advocate attorney and had been litigating LGBT rights cases for years and years. So I kind of felt like I was channeling all my friends and colleagues that have done this kind of work for 30, 40 years, including um, the gay man who died from AIDS before they could finish doing this stuff. And so that was kind of cool. And it, it was also just amazing to be able to be at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I consider myself so lucky because there were so many of these cases and that we ended up being the ones going to the Supreme Court. Just, I mean, it all fell together, but as you said, that's the kind of thing you dream about in your career and not just going to the Supreme Court, going to the Supreme Court with a case that kind of changed constitutional law and was a huge big deal. Like that's just such an honor that I got to participate. But also it was scary because I was second chair, maybe because I'm oldest, but in the morning of the argument, Bill and I had special passes. And so we got in and we were sitting there waiting and all of a sudden it hit me like, what if Doug, the guy, the Supreme Court specialist who was arguing, and I was like, oh my God, what if Doug's sick and doesn't show up? I'm supposed to argue and I haven't prepared <laughs> at all. <laughs> it was yeah. like this really sickening feeling. So he showed up. But. It was it, 
um, was it what you thought it would be like to, to, to get your, to walk in and, and, and pass into the bar physically and, and metaphysically uh, and sit at the table where uh, countless important decisions have been argued and made? It was that and more. I mean, it was really amazing from at the very from the start. You go in and there's a special like waiting room for the people participating in the argument, and the solicitor general argued on our side, which was always also like such a huge thing. It almost made me cry because I've been you know so many government officials had said so many negative things. You know, I've been doing this a long time since the Reagan people wouldn't even talk to us about AIDS, and. To sit, I sat next to the Solicitor General of the United States who was wearing his, you know, they wear those morning suits or whatever you call it with tails and all that. And I said to him at the argument, I said, I said all this to him, like, oh my God, this is such an honor and so amazing because, you know, I explained to him, I've been through all these cases where the feds hated us. And he looked at me and said, well, it's not that way anymore. And argued on our, like we, our side gave some of our time, I think, I can't remember how they did that. Maybe the other side had to give some of their time to the attorney general. I mean, to the solicitor general. So how much? Sitting, and also sitting at that table, like you're so close to them. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was so teeny little. I could hardly see her in the big <laughs> chair when you're that close because she's all shrunk down. Right. And also another thing pretty funny is that Clarence Thomas is so rude. He was talking, like leaning over, talking to Scalia throughout the argument. I wanted to stand up and say, like, excuse me, do you want to share that with the class? But nobody <laughs> said anything to him. He just talks during the argument. So what are the rituals that you that you have to like uh, or that you get to participate in when you go there? Well, going in that special room. And then we get to sit in the front. And as you pointed out before we started, they have real quill pens that they put out on council table. But I let some of the other lawyers take them because since I got to sit at council yeah, table. Yeah, because that's like a thing, like getting your quill is. Yes, it's a big deal. But right. I had the card. I had the card that said um, our names on it and the case and that. So I have that as a souvenir, which is better, maybe. Oh, better than that. You have a Supreme Court opinion. So, um, yeah, well, that's true with our names on it. <laughs> right. Every time uh, some client tells me they got married, I say, like, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Do, do people know that? I mean, like, do people that call you and say, hey, I need to divorce my wife uh, in a same sex situation, do they, do they know? Some of them. Fewer and fewer, I guess, now that it gets further and further behind us. But yeah, all I don't of mind five them. years, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ancient history 2015 so um all right so you 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 argue uh what does argument feel like because i haven't been to the united states supreme court but i've been in appellate courts a lot and sometimes you leave and you think they get it and i'm winning uh and then you don't uh and sometimes you think i don't even know if they were in the room i was in what were they thinking or they seemed disengaged and then you win or you lose you but like people i've gone to argument and then the clients are like how did it go? And you go, I have no idea. <laughs> Who knows? Well, this was a, I have no idea. But it's also always not, it's not always true that when it goes real well, you win. Because I was part of the team working on Hardwick versus Bowers, the sodomy case that went to the Supremes in 1986. The, the, the Georgia and, case that had sodomy right. as illegal. So it essentially criminalized home, consensual right. homosexual and, conduct. 
Right. And the plaintiff in that case was a guy who had been arrested in his own bedroom because the police had come to serve a warrant, blah, blah, blah. And at that argument, we thought for sure we had won. And, you know, famously, people say that Justice Stevens changed his, uh, I mean, Justice Powell changed his opinion. He was going to vote our way and then he was talked out of it. But so you can't always tell. But in, but in the Obergefell argument, we all knew that it was going to be up to Kennedy. He had a history of ruling, you know, being in favor of gay rights. Um, and, you know, the big opinions, he, he wrote the opinion in Windsor, which was about the Defense of Marriage Act that we talked about, uh, marriages being recognized by the federal government. He wrote the opinion, opinion in the Lawrence case that did finally overturn sodomy laws after we lost in Hardwick. And then he did our opinion, and all three of those were decided on June 26th. <laughs> I don't know if that's a secret day. (laughs) But we knew we had to get him. So a lot of things were geared toward him. We thought maybe from the oral argument that uh, Roberts would go our way and it would be 6-3, which would have been a whole lot better. But hey, a win's a win. We don't really care. Right. So how long between you, you, you leave the building and you get the opinion? Well, the argument was something like April 27th or April 28th, I think. And then the opinion was issued on June 26th. So So it was only like 60 days, two months, which is, yeah, not a lot of time. But I also think this is kind of case where everybody already knew what they were going to do, but maybe not. Well, okay. So it turns out to be a five, four opinion, um, making same sex marriage, the law of the land. No, at this point, at that point, moment in time, and for the first time, every state in the union had to recognize same-sex marriage, whether they liked it or not. Right. And here in Tennessee, um, as soon as we won that morning, you, you know, um, the Solicitor General of Tennessee used to be in Bill's law firm. And so as soon as we won, they were on the phone to her um, and Tennessee, among the four states, was the only one that within like an hour, our attorney general and our governor did a media press thing saying that we don't like this decision, but it's the law of the land. And then marriages started immediately here in Tennessee. And that yeah, did were, not happen yeah. in other states. Well, and, and um, not every, not at that point, as I recall, and even through today, at that point, a lot of people who had the power to marry people suddenly stopped marrying anyone. Yeah, there was a lot of... I'm not going to call anyone out by name, but like position-wise, mayors, judges, people people who had the statutory authority to marry people that walked up with a marriage license um, suddenly decided that they would stop marrying anyone at all, period. Yes, that's called cutting off your nose to spite your face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... And it wasn't I, successful. It, it ended up being more attorney fees for all of us to fight well, because you, Well, because then clerks... Yeah, you had some clerk, court clerks and county right. clerks decide that they weren't right. going to obey. And so there was, the, there was the making people do it, which is, I guess... In retrospect, it's sort of like the the National Guard coming to actually bring the black students to the schools. Um, exactly. Kind of that moment. Well, we did better than than that case because you know I went 
I grew up in Florida and I went to segregated schools until 1968. So that was 14 years after the Supreme Court said, no, we can't do that. So it takes a long time sometimes for these kind of decisions to be implemented. But I have to say with marriage equality, it happened much more quickly than um, with desegregation. So put, still- your, put your um, opposing counsel's hat on. What was the... What? I mean, wh- what did they, wh- what was the, the, the architecture of their opposition? Honestly, I'm kind of like sissy. I don't really understand what they were arguing like that. Be- because when you really get down to it, the reason for laws is religious. It's because, you know, in the Bible, it says one man, one woman, that kind of stuff. It's really a religious thing and they can't argue that. So they have to contrive all these arguments and, and one of them they had if i think i understand it was something to the effect of because straight people can have babies just by chance marriage protects them and protects those children and they need it more than gay people because we have to really plan for kids which none try. of that makes any <laughs> yeah you have to involve it, someone else i know it's just ridiculous the whole right. they did they have any arguments it was they just didn't like it yeah the supreme court swept them aside pretty pretty quickly right um yeah i mean not just 60 just days later getting there yeah it was not only 60 days later but it was also that they they just deconstructed each of the the arguments up against it and said none of that works um and, and none of that even really survives much scrutiny at all um okay so five years ago um roughly a little over five years ago, same-sex marriage is, becomes the law of the land. Um, since then, I assume both, I, I know I have, but um, you as well have, have now um, gotten same-sex divorces. Uh, so, um, so now it's sort of um, becoming normalized uh, in, in the courthouse where you, uh, where you have same-sex marriages now going through same-sex divorce. Um, but that was not the end of the complications that uh, that uh, exist in same-sex relationships, which brings us to the case you're currently uh, working on, which is the, can we call it by name? Sure. It's fine with me. I just, it's your case. So I don't. Yeah, I don't. yeah, yeah. It's fine. All right. So we've got, so now you're working on a case called Pippin versus Pippin. Why don't you set up the facts of that? Um, and then we'll dive into how it's, how how Obergefell hasn't completely solved all the problems, at least not yet. Okay, well, as I said, when I started my career, I was kind of amazed at how many lesbians had children from, in, in those days, in the late 70s, it was from prior marriages to men, usually. Um, and now, with all the changes in reproductive technology over the last 20, 30 years, now lots of lesbians and gay men decide to create their own families um, whether or not they're married, you know, by artificial insemination, by in vitro fertilization, by surrogacy for gay men. Um, but there's lots of ways that people can create their own families and have children whether or Let not they're married. Let me interrupt you for just one second and I don't, I'll ask a question to which I don't think I know the answer and that is, what is the status of a same-sex couple being allowed to adopt children at this point? Um, 
that's not an issue anymore in I think in all states, um, but I might not be right about that. But in Tennessee, that has not been a problem for a long time. I mean, they are DCS was fine about placing children with gay families. You know, at first it was like the AIDS babies, which always kind of cracked me up that the hardest kids to take care of, we were good enough to take care of them, but not healthy kids. But that's all in the past. And Tennessee has, for a long time, sexual orientation wasn't a basis to deny an adoption. Um, but, but now, but under our adoption law, <clears throat> an adoption can be by a single person or a married couple. A same-sex couple that isn't married can't adopt. And <clears throat> prior to Obergefell, as you were asking about workarounds, the workaround for that was called a second parent adoption, where we had this theory that actually Davidson hey, County me, Courts- I'm sorry, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but let me make sure I understood what you just said. So if you're single, you can adopt a child in Tennessee. If you're married, right. whether you're same sex or other, you can adopt a child in Tennessee. But you cannot adopt as a same-sex unmarried couple and both become adoptive parents simultaneously. Right. You you can't adopt as an unmarried couple whether you're same-sex or different sex. As an unmarried couple cannot adopt. Okay, so adopt it's, not a, it's not a phenomenon unique to gay people. It's a phenomenon no. of they're, no. not a, they're, they're, and you're, they're making you pick a, quote, air quote, parent, and the other person right. is just something else. Right, which is part of the problem that led to the Pippin case. But, you know, I have to say they, from the start, they were, you know, they were, our courts were fair about that. And as soon as we got marriage equality, Judge Smith, who does the adoptions here in Davidson County, who's very, you know, pro-family and, you know, doesn't, he's been great since the Obergefell decision and before. But he immediately told me, like, well, we can't do second parent adoptions anymore because we were getting around, <clears throat> excuse me, that statute, but with an argument that Tennessee allows people, to, you can not apply statutes. Somebody can waive the benefits of a statute. And so the, the biological parent and the spouse would each waive the benefits of a statute about adoption so that then they could adopt they just let us get around it by waiving the benefits of the of the statutes if that makes any sense all right so and so as we, as we once today, they could get married no more then now everybody has to do a step-parent adoption if they're married okay they so can't. as we sit here today if you are a committed couple but not married you cannot adopt a child as a couple exactly well, all right. So that's all right. We'll put that to the side and maybe we'll have another yeah, that's conversation a separate, about that another day. Um, yeah, that's right, a so separate you get, issue. So you get involved in this Pippin case. Why don't you kind of sketch the facts? Okay, but but see, I've been for for 20, literally, literally 20 years, I've been working on this issue of what's called a de facto parent. When right. an unmarried couple decides to have a kid together or maybe one had a kid and they moved in together and they, the bio parent invites the other one to parent with them, teach the kid that that's their parent, you know, let that person help support the kid, do all the stuff as, as if that person's a parent. And then if they break up, the biological parent says, nope, you go to hell. You're not a parent You're anymore. Canceled. You were 
yeah, you're the, too bad for the kid that they think you're a parent, which of course is horrible for a kid. So I've been trying to get that changed for 20 years. There was a case called Henry Parsons. Um, wait, it has a different name. So your position has been that if two people are bringing a child up and the, and leading everyone, most importantly, the child to treat them and consider them both parents, that when they arrive at the courthouse, the court should accept that and say, you're both parents and now we're going to figure out a custody arrangement. Exactly. And then quite a number of states have already done that. They call it de facto parenting because the fact is the person has been a parent. But to me, the issue is that if you invite anybody, if anybody who's a parent invites another adult into the child's life as their other parent, you lose that, you know, parents have a constitutional right to raise their kids without interference. And I respect that greatly. But if you invite another parent, another adult to be a parent for a number of years and they treat the kid as their child, they support them, they, you know, all that stuff, you lose the right to kick that person out of the kid's life. That's just not fair to the kid. Because the policy, the public policy at stake is that the best interest of the child is to not have a adults that they are connected to and, lo and love kicked out of their life because somebody becomes vengeful or, or, exactly. or selfish. Exactly. And, and okay. plus, you know, we want at least two parents to be supporting children. And well, that's it, the, yeah, that's the other public policy is that we don't want children receiving public welfare when that may not be necessary. If exactly. both parents were not only allowed to, but required to financially contribute to this child that they've accepted and treated as their own. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that case, there was a case in, in, uh, what was it? In, in it was 20 years ago, 1989, 19, no, I'm sorry. I can't remember the date of the Parsons case, which was um, called something else. I'm spacing out, but he did that one. And then in 2013, I tried again in a case called Henry Hayden that the Supreme Court Tennessee didn't take either of those cases and said the legislature should act, but the legislature hasn't acted. So Sandy Pippin's case, when she came to me, it was one of those situations. She and her partner, who had been together for a number of years, Same um, decided to have a son together. They did um, uh, artificial insemination with donor sperm, so it was unknown donor as the father. They, my client was the parent all along. They, you know, sent out birth announcements as a family. The other woman took my client's name, so the baby, so they all have the same last name. I mean, the if you go through the pleadings in the case, or it's even in the stuff that's filed in the appellate courts, you know, like there's just a really long list of things where they said they were a family. They, and they did. Both they did everything and more that yep. people who are living together in a committed relationship who are about to have and then do have a child do everything. Exactly. They, they, they did the birth exactly. they did the announcements. They did the, they put everybody on health insurance. They put everybody on school forms as to who, who the parents are, all of it. Yep. They did everything. My now, client cut the just to be clear, just to be clear the, in the case, it's two women, same sex. They do not, they did not marry. And at the time that their relationship right. began and until late in it, they couldn't because Obergefell had not been decided, but they were right. in a, they were, it's two women. They decide to have a child together. And so your client's 
former partner does in vitro with an anonymous donor and she becomes pregnant, but they then right. do everything that one might expect expectant parents to do. And then they do everything that people with newborns do. And then they do everything that people with kindergartners do. They go to the meetings together, they, they, all that stuff. And then that's all undisputed yep. for, at this point in the record, all of that is taken as true and undisputed. Exactly, because we went up on a motion to dismiss. So you have to assume it's all true, but it is all true. Right, I mean, we course. have documentation well, for it all. And I mean, I'm going to go ahead and I'll say some things and, 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 and I'm going to invite you to not respond unless you just feel compelled to, but um, to sort of set, to sort of skip ahead a bit, what happens is the relationship falls apart and the biological mother, for reasons that aren't clear in the record, decides you're out to and kick and and but this is after she's gone to court and agreed to a parenting plan that would uh that would that where they shared the custody of the child 50 50. no 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 there's no she never agreed to anything through court well but okay but a court but a court did put a parenting plan or they or okay they didn't do it at a courthouse but they did do it no. on, in, in real life they did share custody once they sort of temporarily well well, once they temporarily, once they split up, the bio mom let my client visit for a while and made conditions and rules and blah, blah, blah. But then eventually just said, no, you can't visit at all. As I read the opinion in it, I, I'll, I'll admit that you obviously have more familiarity with it than me. As I read the opinion, it, it read like the biological mom either acquiesced to or got handed, uh, went along with the idea that your client was also a parent until well after the moment in time where it seems like she should have said, no, you're not. And then later came back and said, oh, well, by the way, you're not a parent, so you're out. Well, I would word that differently. I mean, from the moment they decided to have this child together, until the child was like almost six, they acted together as equal co-parents. There was never any question about it. Um, and then when they split up, when the adult relationship soured, the bio parent said, you're not a parent anymore. You know, I don't like you anymore, so you can't be around our so we kid. We've got a six-year-old child who has two parents, and one of those parents right. pulls the, pulls the, uh, I'm not going to say loophole, but the, but the biological mother essentially says to your client, under the law, under the statute, you don't qualify as a parent. Therefore, you have yep. no rights to anything. Be gone. Yep. Yep. Which we can, I mean, I'll say it. You don't need to. Um, that sounds like an extraordinarily cruel thing to do to a child that you purport to love. Exactly. Uh, but and uh, we have expert testimony saying that. <laughs> well, and the trial judge said so. The trial judge yep. said that what would be best for this child is to have this ongoing relationship with both of these parents, but regretted right. but regretted to say that he felt compelled under the laws that existed to do what the biological mom said needed to be done, right? Yes. So the trial judge said, uh, I wish I could do this for you. I wish I could keep you in as parent, but I can't. Um, and I wish you well as you go forward because he knew it was going up. So it goes up to the Court of Appeals and 
in a two to one opinion, because you get three judges at the Court of Appeals, in a two to one opinion, the Court of Appeals rules that, yeah, the statute, the way they read and applied the statute canceled, con continued the cancellation of your client as the mother of this child that she has raised co-parenting for six years. Since birth. So they lost wanna, you for a second. Uh, so, so, the, so the court of criminal, so the court of appeals uh, looks at the statute and says, essentially, and as the, 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 your first legal issue is, yes, it says man, but we have a statute that says it should be applied gender neutral. And if you apply it gender neutral, then clearly your client should be yes. treated as a parent. We but can I explain one other thing? The, uh, the prior cases were not based on the statute. They were just based on the de facto parent theory and developing a criteria to determine someone who's not a biological parent but has acted in the capacity as a parent, as we've been discussing, to recognize them as a de facto parent. But in this case, I also realized this holding out statute that we have, there's several different statutes in Tennessee that define parentage. And right. this particular... And, and, and as you've pointed out, a number of them don't require you to actually be genetically connected to the child. Exactly. But a lot of judges still think that it requires biology or adoption to be a parent, which just simply isn't the law. This, the particular statute at issue here says a man is rebuttably presumed to be a father if, and then it lists a bunch of like four or five criteria. One of them is paternity test. One of them is if you marry the mom which doesn't require biology. And one of them is this holding out provision that says if a man holds out a child as his own natural child, then he's considered a parent. He's presumed um, to be absent someone showing up and yeah, absent someone showing up and saying, no, you're not, I am. Right, exactly. Which and in, in your case, case was never going to happen because there was an anonymous right. donor. Right. So exactly. to, be, to be clear, if parent. a if your client had been an unmarried man arguing for parental rights as to this six-year-old, you'd have won. You'd have, you'd exactly. have gotten a parenting plan of some kind from the juvenile court in Wilson County and gone on with life and not been in the appellate court, um, no matter yes. how mad mom was. Because under the statute, you don't even have to prove that the DNA is makes it your child. Right. All you have to do is it say even matter. to the whole world, I'm that child's dad, or I'm that, it, it, the statute currently says man. But if you say that is my child to the whole wide world, then the judge says good enough for me. Right. And I think it would require more than just saying it, but in this case, right, you know, yeah, right. holding it out, right? Like if you treat the child yeah. as yours, go to the hospital, go to the doctor, right. go to the school, pay for the kid, pay, let, let the child live in your home together with his mother, all those things. Right. Because obviously a lot of this right. paternity stuff predates the capacity for DNA. Like this DNA stuff well, is see, relatively and, recent. And the Tennessee Supreme court going back to, I think the Davis case, the, um, embryo case, you know, a heterosexual couple that weren't married and um, had a kid. Um, anyways, they said that the Tennessee parentage statutes were created before people, re before the technology was available, that there could be maternity fights too. Like it's, and our parentage statutes, you know, it used to be um, a paternity statute and they changed it to be parentage because it's supposed to cover 
all kinds of parented situations, even though the terms of the statute haven't been changed to clarify what they cover given technology. But th this particular statute, if you give it a gender neutral reading, which a different statute requires in Tennessee, it's, it's a no brainer. Like you could, a, a man is rebuttably presumed to be a woman is rebuttably presumed to be a mother instead of a man is presumed to be a father. Right. I mean, like it, it defies, like your common sense man on the sidewalk or woman on the sidewalk, if you walked up to him and said, hey, if you picked a partner, developed a relationship, decided to have a child with that partner, lived with that partner, took the child into your home, raised the child together for six years, should a judge be not only permitted, but obligated to cancel you because you don't fit into one of these criteria? And then yep. the average person walking around would probably say, that sounds like a shitty outcome, right? I think so. It just doesn't make any sense. And applying the basic rules of statutory construction, which, you know, is an accepted principle. You're not supposed to, courts aren't supposed to address constitutional issues unless you cannot resolve a statutory construction. You cannot resolve the conflict by statutory construction. And here, they didn't ever have to get to any constitutional issues, but instead the ruling by Judge Dinkins creates a constitutional problem because right. it so, says right. unmarried men would be treated differently than unmarried women. And that like- Now you're, now you're, now you're back into uh, constitutional dimensions. So the, the, the first argument that you had, which would have solved everything, was, hey, judge, where it says a man, just read it as a person. Yep. Then, then we're done here. Thanks for coming. Person is a parent. Right. If. <laughs> if. And we're done here. And there's a statute that specifically says in, that in not maybe not all, but in most cases, and perhaps including this one, apply gender neutral pronouns regardless of if it says man or woman. Exactly. So but, that, that would have solved this problem and ended this conflict. And based upon what we know, the trial judge said, restored a relationship between the child and this, your client who had been part of this child's life for six years. Incidentally, as we sit here in early September, 2020, what is the status of the relationship between the child and your client at this time? Well, the trial judge let visitation continued, although it was really limited, although the bio mom has been so evil throughout this thing and everything she could interfere, like when he would have FaceTime calls, she told him he couldn't walk around. He could only sit in like this little space. Well, Abby, I mean, none of that comes as a surprise, right? Like she spent tens of thousands no. of dollars to argue the position that was canceling your client. So oh, exactly. not, not surprisingly, she's been difficult in the actual execution yeah. of the She of had the my client laid off. She also had my client laid off. Her, her current partner was my client's boss. So she had her laid off from her job even. But, but when we lost in the court of appeals, they cut off all contact. So since when was that decided? This summer or spring? Yeah. So and, since, um, so for six, oh, six years, your client had this relationship with his child. The Court of Appeals rules, and then boom, that's it. No more, the child, who knows what yeah. the child's been told? Uh, right. Your client is canceled, exactly. pending some other 
relief. Um, exactly. All right. So, so the stat, it would have been simple to solve this problem by simply saying, of course, where it says man, we can simply say person and move on and then put this, put this relationship back together and go on. We don't have to get into all these thorny constitutional issues. Exactly. But that's not what they did. Um, and they just read it as we're just going to say man means man and, and you lose, have a nice day. Uh, and so you are now asking the Tennessee Supreme Court to take this case up so that you can have them address this parentage problem that exists, not only for your client, but presumably, who knows how many, dozens yeah, or hundreds? I think there's or, hundreds, or hundreds, thousands of kids that are in this situation. And they could also be with heterosexuals, although an unmarried heterosexual man who creates this situation could would be recognized under the statute. So it's would, just described. It's women. It's would a, gay. would a, right. Okay. Right. Because you don't have to be gay to have this problem under the opinion that's sitting out there today. You could be, you could be a, a woman who got involved in a relationship with a man who let's just hype. I'll just create a hypothetical spontaneously. A man and a woman have a baby. That woman dies. He's the only remaining parent for an infant and he takes up a relationship with a with a woman. They live together. They raise the child together. They do not adopt or marry. They just live together for six years. And then he decides, I don't like you anymore. Get out. She would have the same problem your client has, wouldn't she? Yes. Under, under the interpretation of the Court of Appeals opinion, yes. She couldn't do anything. So it's not yet like this is not... It, it happens that this case got presented in a same-sex couple, but it, it just seems really problematic that the only people who are ever going to get jammed up by this are women. Yep. So, I thought we were beyond those days. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. So, no. uh, well, apparently not. So you are currently awaiting the Tennessee Supreme Court to decide whether or not they will receive your case. Uh, yes. You have submitted the application for permission to appeal, sometimes called the petition for cert. Um, and uh, you are awaiting a, a decision on that. Do you have any timeline? Yes. On that? No, I thought they honestly, I thought they would have decided by now. But so what does it take? What does it I mean, the, the procedures and policies are sort of the same getting into the Tennessee Supreme Court. They don't have to take this case. They could let it sit. They could say that's it. That's over. Exactly. And I'm. Um, and now I'm spacing out. Does it take three or two? So two of the five have to say, yes, let's decide this. I think so. I think <clears throat> I'm spacing out. It's the, well, the bottom line is it's not a, it's not a majority. It's just enough. It's, it's more than right. one in this case. Um, right. So, and, and it strikes me as it, it this has got to be decided, right? I mean, like. I think so, but I've been saying that for 21 years, trying to get them to address this issue. And, and so. to say that it has to be decided doesn't mean that it has to be decided and Abby's client wins. It it has exactly. to exactly. It just needs to be resolved. It, it, you, I mean, we need a final a final answer that you could then, I guess, theoretically be back on your way to Washington if it turns out uh, badly for your client. But the one thing that shouldn't happen here, it seems to me, fairly obvious, is that it should not end here where it is. Yeah, it's a, I just looked up the rule. It says it's rule 11 Supreme Court rules and the, the application shall be granted if two members are satisfied that it should be. 
So seems like um, I, I'm going to predict. I lost you, you for a second. I'm going to predict that you get that you get your application granted and that this will get taken. I hope you're right. <laughs> so do we, is there anything else? I have that, an argument. I have an argument this afternoon in a similar case, actually very similar that I filed in juvenile court in Rutherford County with <clears throat> the same argument. And because we lost in Pippin there, the other side's trying to get it dismissed. And I want, I'm asking the court to hold it until the Supreme court rules, because I'm willing to concede that Pippin controls. If, if, if the Supremes don't take the case and the court of appeals decision stays in place, then we lose, I lose my other case. But if the Supremes take it and reverse it, I win my other case. So I want the court not to dismiss it, but that's the thing. It's, you know, there's lots of other situations. I've had other attorneys call me about their own cases like this that are pending. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting in your application um, for permission to appeal that the, you know, this used to be pretty, pretty simple, right? Like once upon a time, uh, a woman had a baby and somebody was the father and that father was either her husband or someone else. Uh, but there was, there were certain rules that were created to, to figure out who the dad was or who the court would say is the dad. Um, right. and, and then we got DNA and it got a little more, you would think that that would make it easier and it, it sort of didn't. Um, right. <laughs> but now with technology, now we live as, I guess it was, uh, uh, in a, in a law review article that you quoted, we now live in an era where a child may have as many as five different parents. <laughs> These include a sperm donor, an egg donor, a surrogate or gestational host, and two non-biologically related individuals who intend to raise the child as parents. Um, so, I, I mean, this is, this is not going to get simpler as we go. No, but another, another, the legislature could address this issue, but personally, I have very little expectations or hopes for our well, legislature. Under the current climate in our state legislature, yeah, they don't, um, it is unlikely they don't that they will, I don't know that they don't care. I think it's not going to be, uh, I think it's not going to be one that any of them decide to make an, a campaign issue out of, right? Like, I'm going to go, no, I'm going to go back to my district where I ran as a Republican and tell them how, how happy they should be that I helped out all these unmarried and gay people. Right. But what we need to do is there is a thing called the Uniform Parentage Act that a lot of states have adopted that covers this and many more issues that make it so much easier to decide parentage and all these other issues. And if we would adopt some statutory scheme that was a little more inclusive. Well, and see now, Abby, you're just being... Man, yeah, I know. That's why pragmatic. I said I have no expectations. <laughs> <laughs> you're being pragmatic in a world where people have to go to church, right? Yeah, I know. I um, know. Not to disparage anyone, but I mean, this is, it's, it's kind of the same thing as like, who's going to go down to Nashville and, and do something about draconian drug laws or draconian uh, criminal laws uh, that, you know, let's say, um, uh, like maybe maybe lighten up on some of these drug sentences or some of these sex crimes where perhaps we've we've gone a little far um because when you start actually looking at how they work out in the real world um you know you have um you have some results that are a little bit harsh 
Uh, nobody's yes. going home to their district and saying, hey, I went to Nashville on your behalf and I fixed this for you. Yeah, I agree. So uh, what other issues like this are, are looming out there that, that'll be being tried uh, or, or decided in, um, in the courts of appeals coming up? Um, I'm not sure. Stated differently. Other... You got anything else interesting going on? <laughs> well, this is the most interesting. This is a huge issue to me, and it's a really important issue to me personally and as a legal matter. So this is the main thing I'm working on right now in okay. terms of test cases. All right. Well, um, Abby, I appreciate your time. I, I hope... Um, I hope that you get your application granted, and I I hope then that um, uh, that the Supreme Court will do something that will allow trial judges to uh, look out for the best interest of children generally, because that's really what's at stake here. I don't I I don't uh, uh, what's happened in the Pippin case which is capable of being repeated, as you said, you personally got a case like this, um, is that the trial judge who met these people, heard these people, knew their case, unequivocally said that what would be best for this child would be to spend time with your client. And his hands were tied and he couldn't do it. And the Court of Appeals agreed, yeah, you can't do that. And so here's a, there's a six-year-old child wandering around the world wondering what became of, of his mom. Exactly. That's, that that's not okay. So I hope that you are able to get some relief here, so that a trial judge could at least uh, consider what would be best for that child, which he's already said in this case would be contact and relationship with your client. Yes, from your lips to the Supreme Court's ears. <laughs> well, maybe I'll email them a link to this podcast. Um, <laughs> of course, I, okay. I of course I won't do that. But um, you are free to publicize it when it drops. It'll come out next Monday. Abby, thank okay, you for your time. You. I, um, you know, I, 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 I did not know that uh, back in the day you would practice with Rose. I've known both of you for a long time, but I didn't know that part. So every time I do yeah. this, I learn something I didn't know. But thank you yeah, for your time. You know, Go ahead. Let me just tell you one thing. When I started practicing with them, my dad came up to visit and he told Denny Cheatham they should change the name of the firm to Cheatham, Fuckham, and Rubenfeld. <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that, that was hilarious. Uh, that is pretty funny. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Abby, thank you very okay, much. Thanks, Dana. Uh, I'm going to stop the recording now. So there you have it. My thanks to Abby Rubenfeld. Um, my thoughts on this one, uh, you know, regardless of how you feel about same-sex marriage or, or any of that stuff, um, this one's got to get fixed. I mean, you can't have any woman in Tennessee receive a different outcome than a man under identical circumstances. That just that just cannot be the law. It shouldn't be the law. And uh, when there is an update for this case, I will let you know. Uh, until then, if you like what I'm doing, do the like, the subscribe, follow me on social media, recommend it to people. If you think you might like to be a guest or know someone who might be a good guest, let me know. I'm easy to find. Um, and uh, so until next time, this is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial.